0: Well hey everybody it's great to see you whether you're here in the room or joining us online it's an honor to have you along for the ride and those of you in the room did you notice when you were pulling up today that some interesting things are happening in the big window in Keystone Kids anybody notice so it was kind of interesting um, uh, this Tuesday I was in my office and all of a sudden, you know, the, um, I, I heard some commotion downstairs, and so I kind of went and looked, and there were all these guys, like construction guys with tool belts, it looked like they were ready to get stuff done, you know, walking into the building like a small army. And I thought, what in the world? And I look out, there's this big U-Haul truck. They're here to install a playground for our kids. How cool is that? Yeah. And then I looked at the number of guys and thought, oh no, how much does this cost? Turns out you all already paid for it. So thank you. We had a fundraiser back in like March of last year or something. I totally forgot. I didn't even know we were doing that, but I was pretty pumped. So anyway, in a couple weeks, the kids will have a new place to play here at Keystone. Also, I need to give a shout out, credit where credit's due, to the Michigan State basketball fans. Yes. It was a good day for Sparty, not a great day for the Wolverines. But after the game, I did talk to Coach Juwan, and I told him if I identified as a 20-year-old, could I come help? He said I wouldn't help, and that's true, but I thought that was kind of mean. Anyway, we are in the middle of a series called What is God Like? that, as many of you know, was inspired by a talk that I gave last fall. And just in case you weren't with us uh, in that talk, we explored a conversation that Jesus had one day with his first followers in which he said something absolutely incredible, not only for them, but also for us. So here's what Jesus said. He said to them, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And Jesus often talked about God as his Father in heaven. He says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus gathered his disciples and he said, listen, guys, the more you get to know me, the more you get to know God. Like if you've seen me, you've seen him. If you've heard me, you've heard him. If you've watched me, then you've watched him. You don't have to wonder what he's like anymore. And then I went on to note uh, that it's that reality that makes those New Testament accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, so invaluable. Because if you think about it, they literally reveal to us what God is like. And And so now that said, each week in this series, what we've been doing is exploring a story from the life of Jesus, something he did or something that he taught, and then asking what that can tell us about what God is like. And in order to get us going today, what I want to do is share a little bit about an experience that I had, kind of a disturbing experience, if I'm being honest. Uh, It happened one day when I was training to be a pastor So just imagine this with me, it is the late 90s, okay, William Jefferson Clinton is in the White House, I was seated three rows back and one seat in in a lecture hall at Calvin Theological Seminary right over there on the Beltline, and I was taking a class called Preparing to Pastor, which I thought was a tragically bad name for a class, but whatever, it was required, I was there. And the professor this day asked us a really strange, and if I'm honest, disturbing question. Here's what he said. He said, if you could push a button and get rid of someone, who would it be? (laughs) And I remember thinking, "Um, excuse me, are we not supposed to be training pastors in this class? But he said, like, just imagine if there was a button, like one of those staples, easy buttons, you push the button and someone that you want to get rid of is gotten rid of and no one knows that you're the one that pushes the button. So there's no accountability. And I thought, bro, bro you are dark. You need some therapy, right? But, but then as he continued, he gave us like a list of suggestions, which I thought again was weird. He said, maybe it's like a parent or maybe it's like an ex something. Or maybe it's an employer or an employee maybe it's a one-time friend who did something really, really hurtful and has become an enemy. He said, uh, I think we all have somebody. And he said this, he goes, you know, I want to just acknowledge there's two groups of you that are listening, you know, in this class today. He said, uh, some of you are thinking, I can't believe he's asking this question. He goes, and I just want to give a shout out, that's fair. Because there's some others of you that your first thought was, well, do I have to pick only one? And then he said, I wanted to start the lecture there because of something that you really need to understand about following Jesus. It's true for all followers of Jesus, but he goes, I think it's especially true if you're going to survive as a pastor. He says, more than almost anything else, you all need to learn to forgive people who hurt you, who disappoint you, and who complicate your life. Because he said, unfortunately, church leadership is full of those people. In other words, he looked at us, you know, we're all, most of us were in our 20s at the time. He said, guys, forgiveness is essential to your emotional health, your vocational health, and your spiritual health. In fact, um, and I wanted to start there because this is actually today's answer to the question of what God is like. As it turns out, whether you're a pastor or not, uh, God wants you to forgive the people who hurt you. He really does. And and once again this week, the reason I can say this so confidently is because of a conversation that Jesus had one day with his first followers. It was another one of those conversations that they never forgot. And uh, so here's just by way of a setup kind of how things went down. Best I can tell, it was a year or so after he invited those first 12 guys to follow him. Uh, And in the months since that invitation, the disciples had noticed something Um, It had become abundantly clear to them that not everyone was a fan of Jesus and the movement that he was so intent on launching. And so consequently, um, you know, as Jesus followers, they often found themselves at odds with rich and powerful people who seemed intent on complicating their lives. And so I imagine the disciples are having conversations around how hard it is to be a Jesus follower at times And I imagine in these conversations, they began to wonder how all of this relational tension they were experiencing should interact with Jesus' repeated instructions for them to forgive those who harmed them. And so eventually, this tension kind of reaches a boiling point, and Peter, who's Jesus' oldest and boldest disciple, asked him a question. He wanted to know if there were any limitations on his instructions for them to forgive those who hurt them. And Peter phrased the question this way. He said, Lord, or boss, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? He says, up to seven times? And that feels a little random to us, right? Because like, you know, like, why seven? Why not nine or six or whatever, right? Um, But Peter actually uses a Jewish idiom here. Seven was the number of perfection. And so what he's saying here is like, okay, if I've forgiven a religious or political leader who has hurt us seven times, then surely that's enough. And so that's the question. And Jesus immediately answered him. He said this, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And again, that also seems a little random, but in fact, 77 was a Jewish idiom. Basically that meant endless. So, Jesus commands his followers to forgive people who hurt them endlessly. In other words, according to Jesus, there is no limit to the obligation to forgive. And I just imagine these disciples, because I mean, they're living this firsthand. I think they would have been stunned, maybe as stunned as you and I are when we first are introduced to this concept. And like us, Peter would have had questions like, Come on, Jesus. Are you serious? Like, isn't that naive? Isn't that weak? I mean, I I don't even think I could get my mind to do it, but if I could somehow convince my mind it was possible, my heart, there's no way my heart would follow. And so as the story continues, by way of an answer to Peter's unarticulated questions, because we don't have a record that he asked any clarifying questions, Jesus began to tell him a story It's a famous story. They call it a parable, and parables are designed to give us a window into something from heaven's perspective. And so Jesus, in answer to Peter's question, how many times do I need to forgive, Jesus began a story this way. He said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like... In other words, uh, Jesus said, Peter, if you want to live life in the way that God intended it to be lived... Like, you want to live as a part of his kingdom here and now. It's going to be a bit like this. He said, it's a bit like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And so Jesus begins the story by introducing us to a king who, in the kingdom of heaven, everyone would have understood, you know, was kind of the God character, who apparently does business with his servants. Like, they borrow his money, and they invest it, and then presumably later repay their debts. So, so far, so good. Jesus continued. Jesus continued. He said, as he began the settlement, so there's a day that people appeared before the king to pay back the money, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And uh, I remember, I mean, I grew up in church. I've heard this story a million times like many of you. I always thought 10,000 talents was like $10,000. And that isn't historically or, you know, it's no no research to get there. It just kind of felt like, yeah, about $10,000. That was a lot of money and sure. But but that's not what 10,000 talents meant. And in fact, the amount of debt, that was owed by this guy is the key to understanding what Jesus was trying to communicate in this story. And so here's here's what I mean. Uh, In first century Israel, it would take an average worker 20 years to earn one talent. And so a debt of 10,000 talents would take an average worker something like 200,000 years to repay if they didn't spend any money on anything else like, uh, you know, kids or food or housing. So Jesus' point is, it's a ridiculous, unrepayable debt. Uh, in fact, when I was working on this talk this week, I grabbed my iPhone um, to use the calculator app. And I don't know if you remember, if you guys are old enough, you remember calculators? If you're like a millennial, a calculator was like an iPhone without the phone part. And it didn't play Netflix. It just did number things, okay? So I, I opened my app and I did something else. This is a public service announcement. If you turn your iPhone sideways, have you ever done this on the calculator app? it's terrifying because it will remind you of math class in high school. Like all of these things that we used to know what they are and we don't know what they are anymore. And when our kids ask us, we go, oh yeah, like that. And we don't know. Anyway, I grabbed my iPhone app and figured out that for a worker that say they work at McDonald's and they make $15 an hour today, uh, a comparable debt to the debt the guy had in the story, you ready for this, would be 6.2 billion dollars. <laughs> Like I said, the debt that this guy owed was ridiculous, it was unrepayable, and that was Jesus' point. So anyway, as he continued, Jesus said this. And this first line's great. Since he was not able to pay, and the disciples have been like, Yeah. Right. The master, the king, ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that they had be sold to repay the debt. And we're like, that seems cruel. Um, And it is from our perspective, but you need to understand that in the first century, Roman world, this was very common. Like it was common when someone got into debt, uh, they would sell themselves and their wives and their children and their stuff in order to repay the debt. But notice that in this case, selling humans really wouldn't help that much, right? I mean, I love my wife and my boys and even our two boxers, but I'm pretty sure no one would give me $6.2 billion for them. I'm just throwing it out there. And if you're interested, I'm just kidding. No, right, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, Jesus uh, continued his story. He says, this is what happens. The servant fell on his knees before the king. And then he says this, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. In other words, in a commentary I was reading, pointed this out. In other words, the dude just lies. (laughs) Like, come on, he and the king know that there's no way he's going to repay that debt. No matter how long the king waits. Waits. Uh, Now, as the story continues, we've reached the unexpected hinge point, um, because as Jesus continues to speak, he tells his disciples this. He says, the servant's master, the king, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. And I think the disciples would have been speechless. Like, no one was expecting that to happen, but but before we go any further, I need to ask you a really important question. The question goes like this. Why does the king cancel the debt in Jesus' story? And I'm telling you, the answer to this question is critical if we're going to understand what Jesus was trying to communicate through his story. I mean, if you think about it, the king did not cancel the debt because of what the servant promised. As we just said, he lied. And so it must be that Jesus wanted his followers to understand something about what God is like. Specifically, he wanted them to understand that if they were ever going to settle the debt their sins had created with God, and as Jewish people, they were well aware of the connection between sin and a debt that they incurred with God. So if they were ever going to pay off the debt of their sins with God, it was going to be on the basis of God's grace and not their effort. And by the way, this is what makes Christianity different than pretty much every other religious system out there. And it's also why the first people to hear the message of what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection, they, they kept saying the same thing. As the word went out into the Roman world, they kept saying, "This is gospel. This is good news." What happened when Jesus died on the cross was nothing less than a breathtaking demonstration of amazing grace. And, and not surprisingly, when you read the letters that make up much of the New Testament of the Bible, you start seeing this idea celebrated over and over and over and over again. I just want to show you one because I can't help myself. Uh, it's a, in a letter to Christians living in a city called Ephesus, major metropolitan city. An early pastor named Paul wrote the following, and, and I imagine Paul had tears in his eyes when he wrote this. I mean, we, we can't feel the emotion, but, but he says to them, listen, guys, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. He says, not by works so that no one can boast. How do you get right with God? How do you get saved? How do you spend eternity with him? It's all his grace. He stepped in and forgave you an un. Repayable debt. A debt that you could never repay, a ridiculous debt, and Jesus paid it all. And that's actually why we sang that song in the first half. And if you remember that, I, I reached out to Paul and I was like, Can we sing that Jesus paid it all song? And he was like, What song? And I'm, I'm just kidding. Paul knows Jesus paid it all. He's been a worship guy forever. Anyway, uh, jumping back into the story, I suspect that following the miraculous repayment of debt, This servant should be walking on air. I mean, pull it into our modern times. This is like he just won a million-dollar lottery 6,200 times in a row. He went from suffocating bondage and fear that he and his family would spend the rest of their lives in slavery to complete and utter freedom. He had been transformed by grace. So you gotta wonder, how was he feeling as he walks out of the king's chambers? And how did the way that maybe he interacted with people for the rest of his life change? And we actually don't have to wonder because Jesus actually told us as the story continues, he tells us what happened right after he walked out of the king's chambers. He said, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, so another guy who lives in the kingdom, who owed him 100 denarii not talents. Hundred denarii and a hundred denarii in the first century was basically a hundred days' labor, at fifteen dollars an hour, something like twelve thousand dollars. I mean, that, that's a lot of money, but it's certainly repayable, which again was Jesus' point. Okay, so now check out what happened next. Jesus said uh, he grabbed him. So the guy he runs into, the guy that owes him the The money grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And I actually think at this point, Jesus is trying to get an emotional response from his disciples, right? Because let's be honest, at this point in the story, nobody likes unforgiving dude, right? Like, who would do something like that? And then Jesus continued. His fellow servant fell onto his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. And that's interesting, Because the tables have completely turned in the story. The debtor has now become the one to whom the debt is owed. And it's interesting in the original language of this text, it's exactly the same. It's like the posture is the same, the description is the same, the request is the same. But see, the outcome couldn't have been more different. Jesus said, but he refused. And instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. And so now at this point in the story, I need to ask you another question. I mean, why is it that this strikes us as so wrong? And I thought about that a bunch this week. And and I, I think it feels wrong whenever someone who receives extravagant generosity withholds significantly less extravagant generosity from someone else. It just doesn't feel right. And it feels wrong whenever somebody receives extravagant grace and then withholds significantly less extravagant grace from somebody else. And I think that's deep in us all. And and in fact, we're not the only ones who felt this way because as Jesus continued, he said this. He said, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told the king everything that had happened And then the master called the servant in and he said, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And then this next section is, really interesting he said in anger his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed and i wrote in the margin interesting apparently you got paid to be tortured in ancient times i know it's a story i was just having fun right yeah but when you're you're listening to the story and all of a sudden you're like okay now that it feels as right as the last section field wrong and as i imagine it at this point in the story jesus disciples would have felt the same way they would have kind of been nodding great story jesus let's go get some lunch I mean, this ungracious dude got what he deserved. Tension resolved. But see, that's not why Jesus told the story. Because in a truly brilliant move, there was one more piece to the story. And in fact, the last piece is why Jesus told the whole story. It was a sort of setup. Jesus said this to his disciples. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister. From your heart. And I think those words just hung in the air. Because apparently, when it comes to forgiveness, Jesus couldn't have been any clearer. It's supposed to be multi dimensional. And, and here's what I mean by that if we have placed our faith in Jesus, then We have received forgiveness that we don't deserve from God. That to me is that's forgiveness on the vertical axis. And then once we accept that gift, we're called to extend forgiveness to others who don't deserve it, just like we didn't deserve it. And moreover, according to Jesus, to miss the connection between the vertical forgiveness and the horizontal forgiveness is to miss something foundational to the way God wants us to live. In fact, to miss that connection is a strange sort of torture. And that word is charged, but if you think about it, you probably wouldn't describe it that way, but you know that's true. I mean, thinking back on your life so far, have you ever had a season when you didn't forgive someone or maybe felt like you couldn't forgive someone? And maybe for you, it was a month and maybe for you, it was a year and maybe for you, it's been decades And it's almost like you were carrying them around with you in the back of your mind. And you find yourselves at strange moments replaying conversations, again, sometimes from years ago in which you were hurt. And you replay them and you think, what would I say differently if I had that conversation today? Or or maybe for you, you wake up at night and you think about this person. And maybe it, it was a boyfriend or a husband who cheated on you. Maybe it was a business partner who did something that cost you a lot of money. Or maybe for you it was like a family member who just seems genetically incapable of keeping a secret, right? Like you, you just, you like, I can't trust them anymore with any details about my life because as soon as I tell them, everybody knows. Like whatever the specifics, whenever we refuse to forgive someone who hurt us, it costs us. And though we may have never thought about it in these terms, it's almost a form of of torture. I love how one of my favorite authors described it. His name is Tim Keller. He was a pastor in New York City. He passed away recently, but he literally planted churches in New York City, so he's that hardcore. But anyway, he wrote a great book called The Reason for God, in which he described this. And and check out what Keller writes. He says, forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. He said it's a form of suffering. You don't only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation and opportunity, but now you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. He says you're absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out of the other person. It is hurts terribly. He says many people would say it feels like a kind of death. And he said, yes, but it's a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. Isn't that great? So well said. Like Keller argues that to not choose to forgive someone is to choose to die a long, slow death of bitterness and cynicism. It's a form of suffering. It's a form of torture. But I love that that he spins it positively as well, because he says, listen, Jesus' invitation to forgive will feel like death in the moment, but it's a death that leads to resurrection. It's a death that will lead you into greater life. And I suspect that deep down, we all know this to be true as well, I mean, we know that not forgiving someone beats us up and wears us down over time. And we know that the longer that we carry the hurt that was inflicted on us, the more it kind of shapes our reality. And, I, and, and I'm actually convinced that's why all those many moons ago, late 90s, William Jefferson Clinton in the White House, right? That's why my professor in the Preparing to Pastor class, still hate the name, highlighted the absolute necessity of forgiveness, Like our willingness to forgive has everything to do with who we are today and who we will become tomorrow. Said a bit differently, it's one thing to accept the free gift of vertical forgiveness that God offers us on the cross. It wasn't free from his perspective, it was free from our perspective. But it's another thing to accept the gift of horizontal forgiveness. Counterintuitive, feels very costly. But see, that's that's why Jesus told the story. He knew how important it was for his followers to forgive. And, And by the way, I don't actually think that the deeper meaning of this parable hit Peter until months later when he found himself staring at Jesus hanging on a cross. I mean, as I imagine it, he must have thought, if this was what it took for God to forgive my sins, If this is the price of forgiveness, then who am I to withhold forgiveness from anyone else? I mean, God's desire to to forgive my sins required the death of his son. And so my decision to forgive someone who hurt me, I mean, it'll cost me, but not nearly that. It might cost me my pride. It might cost me some sense of justice. But if I'm honest, that justice thing isn't always possible anyway. Anyway. So it's true for Peter, it's true for you and me. I mean, if you think about it, like in the shadow of my hurt, someone hurt me badly, my decision to forgive feels like a decision to reward my enemy. And I don't want to do that. But see, in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness becomes a gift from one undeserving soul to another. And I think there's more because forgiveness is also a gift, as Grant mentioned up top, that we give ourselves because it ensures our freedom from a prison of sorts of bitterness and resentment. It's interesting, I've served for a pastor for a long time now, and whenever I meet with someone who's struggling to forgive someone who hurt them in a brutal way sometimes, I'll often notice the same thing. It's like they're doing what comes naturally to all of us, but they're evaluating their decision to forgive in light of what was done to them and not in light of what Jesus did for them. And I'll gently say in those moments, I think it might be helpful if you shift your perspective. And we talk about this parable. I said that's why Jesus instructed his followers to view forgiveness from the perspective of the cross. Because like the undeserving servant in the story, we have been forgiven an impossible, unrepayable debt. And in response, we have been instructed to forgive those who sin against us. And we've been instructed to do so over and over and over again, even when we don't feel like it, because let's be honest, we never feel like it. And even when they don't deserve it, because let's be honest, they never deserve to be forgiven That's the definition of grace. It's what we have received if we are in Christ and it's what we have been invited to extend. In other words, forgiving people are to be forgiving people. Forgiven people are to be forgiving people. I guess you could even say, according to Jesus, there really are two ways that his followers can choose to live in this broken world. We can live under the rules of this world, seeking revenge and repayment whenever we're wronged, and we can choose, or we can step away from that system and step into his kingdom and live by a counterintuitive set of relational rules. And in that system, we forgive because we have been forgiven. We give others what they don't deserve because we have been given what we don't deserve. Again, it's a whole other economy that, as it turns out, can bring us towards the life that we were designed to live. It's not weak to forgive. It is incredibly strong. So now, before I let you go, um, I need to ask you a question. It goes like this. If you could push a button and get rid of someone, who would it be? Maybe if you're honest right now, um, it's a parent, it's an ex, it's an employee, it's an employer. It's a one-time friend who hurt you deeply and became an enemy. Here's the thing, and this may be hard for you to believe right now, and it's been hard for me to believe in certain situations right now, but if you get serious about forgiving as you have been forgiven, over time, your answer to this question can actually become no one. And that, my friends, is freedom. And so, one last question. um, What is God like? Well, according to Jesus, he wants you to forgive the people who hurt you because he knows that that is the path to the life he designed you to live. And we'll pick it up there next week. For now, I'd love to invite you to stand if you're here in the room, and I'll close our time in prayer. Um, if you're joining us and something in you was stirred, I would just encourage you, don't, don't hit the doors just yet. We have some friends under the screen to the left that would love to talk to you and, and pray for you if, if they can serve you in that way. Uh, but for the rest of us, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for moving towards us. Thank you for providing a way where there was no way. And thank you for inviting us to be transformed by the grace that we have been shown. I pray that this week as we wrestle down what to do with what we've heard, um, your spirit would be at work bringing to mind those that we still need to forgive. And as we do, as we let them go, I pray that we would step into greater and greater freedom. We desire to be light in this world and we thank you that Jesus shows us the way to be that light. So for today, we thank you and we bless you and we love you. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week.